Hello and welcome. A very warm welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm the director. We are delighted to be hosting this James Brokenshire Memorial Lecture on the subject of restoring faith in politics and to be having as our speaker today the Right Honourable Theresa May MP. I'm going to accept compliments all round on the timing of this that has brought this subject and this um, terrific talk, which we're very much looking forward to, brought, brought it to us uh, today. Um, an hour clear, I think, of other events. Thank you very much for joining us here uh, at the IFG online, and an especially warm welcome today to Sophie and Gemma, James Breckenshire's daughters, who have come to hear this today. Theresa May needs no intro introduction. Prime Minister from 2016 to 2019, Home Secretary for a long spell, and a Conservative MP for Maidenhead since May 1997. We're delighted to have you here. Your phrase, remember the good that government can do, is a phrase that has stuck with me since I began this job six years ago. This lecture does need a bit of introduction, though, and to explain why we're so pleased to be hosting it. As you know, James Brokenshire served in Theresa May's cabinet between 2016 and 2019, first as Northern Ireland Secretary, then as Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government. And very sadly, he died from cancer in 2021. And today's lecture is in memory of James and will reflect on the theme of public service which was central to his life and career as anyone who had anything to do with him knew. And before I invite Mrs May to give her lecture, I'm going to ask Sir Jeremy Wright MP, the former Attorney General and a close colleague of James, who together with Chloe Smith MP has helped put together today's lecture, just to say a few words. Jeremy. Thank you, Bronwyn. Thank you very much. And it's a, a pleasure to be able to say just a few words before we hear from Theresa. James Brokenshire was many things. He was a, a father to Sophie and Gemma, who are very welcome here today, and of course to Ben. He was a friend and colleague to many of us, but he was also a consummate, effective, and dedicated public servant. And what Chloe and I were thinking over the last few months was that it would be right to commemorate James's commitment to public service and to fill what we saw as a gap, because you will not have failed to notice that there have been plenty of discussions recently about how public servants have failed to come up to the standards of public service expected of them. But there hasn't been much discussion of what good public service looks like and why it's important. And so we hoped that this would be an opportunity to discuss those things as a fitting tribute to someone who encapsulated them and who demonstrated not just why public service was important, but also how it could be done well. So I'm immensely grateful to the Institute for Government, to Bronwyn and particularly to Hannah White, if I may say so, for all the hard work that's been done to make this happen. Um, Chloe and I, of course, have had many discussions with them, but all of the organisation, I think, largely has been done by the IFG, so we're grateful to you for that. And grateful to everyone here and everyone listening online too for participating in what I hope will be a fitting tribute, not just to James, but a commemoration of him and a reminder that for now and for the future, public service really matters. 
And in that vein, it's an even greater pleasure to have Theresa delivering this lecture, a Prime Minister whose commitment to public service, I think, has never been in doubt. So, Theresa, we're grateful to you for doing it, and I'm sure we look forward very much to what you have to say. Bromley, thank you. Jeremy Wright, thank you very much indeed. A few words of housekeeping before we kick off, as you'll see on the screen above me. Um, please submit your questions via Slido. We're not going to have a vast amount of time for questions, but I will at least see them coming in and do what I can. We'll be live tweeting these events from our IFG um, events account, and the hashtag is IFG Brokenshire. And with that, Theresa May, thank you very much indeed for coming to give this talk on restoring faith in politics. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Bronwyn, for that introduction. And I am genuinely delighted to be able to join you all today to give this James Brokenshire Memorial Lecture. I'm particularly delighted that Sophie and Gemma are here to join us today, too. And I do congratulate you on your timing, uh, Bronwyn. What a week in which to hold this uh, lecture. But for the avoidance of doubt, this is the speech I would have given regardless <laughs> of circumstances. Because this is a speech in memory of James Brokenshire. And I would also like to thank Cassie Brokenshire, Jeremy White, Chloe Smith, and the Institute for Government for the work in establishing the lecture. It is, I believe, a fitting and lasting memorial to James, who was not just a valued and trusted colleague, but also a wonderful friend. And I can think of no better place to, to uh, give this lecture than here at the Institute for Government. This is an organization dedicated to making government more effective. Dare I say it, effective government needs effective ministers. And I can think of no more effective minister than the late James Brokenshire. James joined the Home Office as one of my junior ministers, already highly knowledgeable on home affairs, having shadowed the brief for four years. He served first as Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Crime Reduction, then for Crime and Security, then as Minister for State for of State for both Security and Immigration, grappling at once with two of the most important and complex areas of policy. In fact, I recall the then Permanent Secretary remarking that as James was responsible for two-thirds of Home Office business, what on earth were the other ministers going to do? <laughs> On becoming Prime Minister, I appointed James to the Cabinet as Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and subsequently as Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government. And he was, of course, later reappointed to the Home Office as Minister of State for Security under the new government. James was respected by all those he worked with and civil servants liked working with him. He took the time to understand the issues, thought carefully about them and would challenge officials when necessary. But they always knew that the challenge came because he wanted the policy to work. He wanted government to be effective. He was always respectful of officials, understanding that good government requires politicians and civil servants to work together as a team, everyone determined to provide the best practical solution for the public we all serve. When thinking about James and why he was so effective, three elements come to mind. And it's these three that I want to develop in this lecture as I address this issue of restoring faith in politics. And those three elements are, firstly, that he was a good constituency MP, recognizing that it is in the constituency that we can see the impact of policy. 
Secondly, James respected Parliament, understanding the importance of the scrutiny that Parliament provides. He accepted both that Parliament can improve legislation and that sometimes there has to be compromise in order to get legislation through. Another element of this was his willingness to work across the House to find solutions. This came most naturally in relation to his work as security minister, but in other areas too, he would take the time and trouble to speak to his opposite numbers. And thirdly, he knew that ministers have to get to grips with the issues. It isn't good enough just to wing it or prioritise getting the headlines. An effective minister takes the time and trouble to really get into the detail of the issue. James was a dependable, safe pair of hands, and I always had confidence in him. But when I look back at the sort of man he was, James wasn't merely competent. He was unmistakably somebody with deep-rooted values. He exemplified decency, honesty, and integrity. Values that I believe are essential in public life if we are to have faith in our politics. As was remarked at his memorial service, James came into politics to serve, not to be served. I have said before that Parliament is the worse off without James. I would also say that our politics and Parliament would be more likely to be trusted by the public if there were more politicians who clearly showed they shared James's values. Public service was perhaps James's strongest motivation. He was a consummate member of Parliament. He knew that his increasingly successful ministerial career was only possible because his constituents had sent him to Parliament on their behalf. And he didn't just represent their views. He was deeply embedded within the local community. He brought people together and through service to his constituents earned their respect. In our modern representative democracy, it's no longer uh, enough simply to turn up at Parliament and shuffle through the voting lobbies. The public rightly expect us to be fighting their corner, taking up their concerns, visible in the community, and working for them on local issues and interests. They expect us to be making a tangible difference to their everyday lives. This was uh, a concept often misunderstood by fellow ministers internationally. I particularly remember one of my opposite numbers when I was Home Secretary, remarking on the peculiar arrangement in the UK of being both a minister and an MP and asking what it was like. I replied, put it this way, today I am at this international summit discussing counter-terrorism. Tomorrow I will open a community vegetable garden. <laughs> While these seemingly frivolous constituency engagements might not have the glamour of international summits, they've always been just as important to me and I know that was a view shared by James Brokenshaw too. I spoke on my last appearance at the dispatch box as Prime Minister about the vital link between every single member of the House and the constituencies we represent. I called it the bedrock of our parliamentary democracy and our liberty. Because without strong relationships with the communities we serve, how can we expect to build faith in our politics as a whole? The strong relationship James had with his local community is particularly inspiring at a time when trust in politicians has been eroded. A recent YouGov poll for the IPPR found that 63% of people believe their politicians are merely out for themselves. More shockingly, 5%, just one in 20 people, believe that MPs are in it for the interests of their country. 
A recent poll for Carnegie UK found that over three quarters of the population don't trust MPs very much or at all. Now, distrust in politics is not a new issue. We were asking the same questions of the public 80 years ago. The difference is when asked in 1944, just 35% of the population agreed that politicians were out for themselves compared to two thirds of people today. The Carnegie survey also identified nine values often thought of as being desirable in public life and asked people which they felt was most important. Almost half of the representative sample chose honesty and integrity. By contrast, fewer than 5% of people prioritised other values, including individual liberty and strength and security. Of those who most valued honesty and integrity, only 8% agreed the government has this value. The figures make for sobering reading. But they demonstrate that if we are to accommodate voters' priorities, we ought to be placing at least as much if not more emphasis on improving honesty and integrity in public life as we do in other areas of public policy. Those of us engaged in politics must grasp just how significantly the electorate feel their expectations are not being met. One of the fundamental expectations of the people we represent is that we play by the rules. No double standards, no taking advantage of the position one holds. It's that inherently British sense of fair play Originally popularised, of course, through our nation's greatest sport, cricket. A game that, in a time of empire, inequality and class divide, brought together aristocrats and labourers on an equal footing under one set of rules. In cricket, it's not enough to avoid breaking the rules. In fact, the game requires adherence to its traditions as much as its laws. Law 41. The captains are responsible for ensuring that play is conducted within the spirit of cricket, as well as within the laws. Respect is essential. Respect of one's teammates, the opposition, and the authority of the umpire. And players must create a positive atmosphere by their own conduct and encourage others to do likewise. For any action which is seen to abuse this spirit causes injury to the game itself. I take the same view of politics. Breaking the rules and breaking the spirit of the rules causes injury to the standing of our democracy. In politics, of course, playing by the rules means following the law. And it's not unreasonable to expect those of us who write the law of the land to follow its letter and spirit. It also means adhering to the rule of law, the doctrine that all people and institutions, including the state itself, are accountable under the law as it stands. It protects the liberty of the individual against the arbitrary use of power. It underpins political and economic stability and our standing in the wider world. And as I've said before, we cannot claim as a country to operate in line with the rule of law if we flagrantly abuse our own obligations under treaties we have signed. Playing by the rules also means not changing them on a whim to suit short-term or personal interests. The government's decision back in November to attempt to change the rules on parliamentary standards was ill-judged and wrong. It is right the ministers have since apologised, but the episode did little to improve faith in our politics and spelled the beginning of an unhappy period for the government and for our public life. Playing by the rules means following them not because you have to, but because you do so willingly, recognising that the damage from breaking them may not be direct or immediate but it can be severe and lasting. 
It's the spirit of cricket again. It's especially pertinent in our constitutional system, where adherence to convention is an important element of our democracy. The flexibility afforded by our uncodified constitution has served us well over centuries. By and large, its slow evolution has enabled it to meet the requirements of the day, where other countries have found themselves caught in a legal straitjacket. But our system only works if conventions are not cast aside wholesale, or at least not willfully misinterpreted. It rests on those in positions of authority being trusted to uphold the values and traditions of our public life. Now, of course, in our parliamentary system, the role that exemplifies that the most is the Speaker of the House of Commons, the one person above all others who is expected to be neutral in their work. The practical, exercisable power held by the Speaker to shape public debate and the work of our legislature is often underreported. The workings of the House are determined officially by the standing orders, but the interpretation and application of those orders is entirely within the hands of the Speaker. In areas where the standing orders are not clear, we consult works of authority such as Erskine May and adhere to proven historical conventions. Long-standing practices like the government of the day determining the business of the House or the proper use of a humble address, which until 2017 had not been used substantively since 1866. On that occasion, 2017, the Labour Party leadership sought to disregard the long-standing conventions of our legislature for short-term political gain. In doing so, breaking another of our most fundamental practices in not seeking to involve the monarch in our political debate. If we depart from the spirit of our established constitutional rules to suit short-term interests, we undermine faith in our system. Another well-known convention of the House of Commons, of course, is the way we refer to fellow parliamentarians. We are all, in the House at least, honourable members. Convention dictates that we don't address one another, instead pose our questions and responses to the chair. Convention prevents us from calling one another liars and traitors. For over 150 years, these practices, admittedly perhaps odd-sounding to the outside world, have helped to make the cut and thrust of debate less personal and direct, and have helped in a small way to maintain the dignity of the House and the honour of its members. Because politics is an honourable pursuit. And in my experience of over 30 years in public life, the vast majority of those who seek political office are motivated to improve the lives of others and fight for what they believe to be in the best interests of the country. That was certainly true of James Brokenshaw. There have been some notable exceptions. And sadly, it takes only a few isolated instances of poor conduct to rubbish the reputation of us all. That's why the accepted standards of conduct in public life must be a high bar. This is to engender a culture of high standards and avoid a situation where the increasing number of isolated incidents begin to resemble a general trend. I'm not suggesting that public servants should live faultlessly. None of us are infallible. Nor am I naive enough to suggest there was once a time when British public life was free from scandal of one sort or another as anyone who's read Matthew Paris's book, Great Parliamentary Scandals, will know. But we should all be mindful of perceptions, often amplified by the media, of MPs serving themselves rather than the common good, of our public life being satirised as little more than a culture of excess. I've always held the view that Parliament is a place of work. Yes, we are elected, but that does not make us a breed apart. 
we must reject the culture of exceptionalism, <coughs> that because parliament and government might be unlike other workplaces, the usual rules somehow don't apply. To the contrary, having a role in public life requires us to think more carefully than others about our actions. Culture can shape behavior just as much as any rule or process or threat of enforcement. It pervades our institutions and once established can be hard to change. The incident shown to have taken place during the pandemic in Downing Street and Whitehall over the last two years have done little to dispel these perceptions of excess and exceptionalism at a time when the rest of the country was making sacrifices. Breaking the rules and the perception of breaking the rules damages faith. In response, we should be focusing our collective efforts on driving up standards and establishing a better culture in which those in public life can be trusted to act responsibly. But as we have seen as recently as this week, the excessive consumption of alcohol continues to be responsible for front page news. Over recent years, we have seen an alarming number of accusations and instances of abuse. Sadly, in my own time as Prime Minister, I had to deal with several incidents concerning the conduct of other politicians. My time in office aligned with the Me Too movement, which rightly gave victims the confidence to come forward. And I remember sitting down with the MPs and Peers Staff Association to hear their experiences of Parliament as a workplace. I was truly shocked by the extent of the bullying and harassment that was taking place. In the wake of these events, I felt it was important to make changes both in Parliament and in the Conservative Party so that victims' voices could be heard. In Parliament, I sought cross-party support. And thanks to the work of the then leader of the House, Andrea Leadsom, and the review by Dame Laura Cox, Parliament established the Independent Complaints and Grievances Procedure. And the procedure has been updated further, thanks to the work of Gemma White and Alison Stanley. I also introduced several measures within the Conservative Party, including a new code of conduct and a hotline for reporting potential breaches to ensure victims of mistreatment could come forward and receive a fair hearing and to make explicit the standards expected of those who represented the party. Although these changes are not the solution to stamping out this harmful culture, they have given confidence for victims to come forward and investigations to take place. It isn't just recent incidents that have shaped the public's perception of politicians. The expenses scandal over 13 years ago has left a deep scar on voters' consciousness. The sense of systemic wrongdoing has not been forgotten. Unsurprisingly, these portrayals only breed apathy and weaken our democracy, because faith in our politicians is the cornerstone of faith in our politics. Strengthening our democracy is about demonstrating the highest standards of conduct in public life. The Nolan principles have now underpinned the ideals of public service in this country since they were first established in 1995. Selflessness, integrity, objectivity, accountability, openness, honesty, and leadership. While that report was authored over two decades ago, these principles are still fundamental to our public life. I've touched on some of them already, but perhaps the most important is leadership, for without responsible leadership, the other principles wither. I say responsible leadership because faith in politics is underscored by the taking of responsibility. Taking responsibility for one's own actions rather than blaming others. And for those in positions of leadership, taking responsibility for the actions of those we lead. It is particularly inexcusable 
to see the civil service repeatedly and publicly vilified and blamed when policy isn't working in the way politicians intended. Over the years, I've had the privilege to work alongside thousands of dedicated officials and have seen at first hand the professionalism and commitment they bring to their roles. I'm afraid in our system, the buck stops with ministers. The seals of office do not confer power without responsibility. The Nolan principles should guide the use of political power at all levels, whether that might be spending taxpayers' money on local amenities, making public appointments, passing laws which impact how people can live their lives, or even decisions of war and peace. They apply at all times. Because scrutiny doesn't just take place every five years. The ballot box alone is not a sufficient check and balance against conduct in public office. We don't vote in elections to give those we elect carte blanche to behave as they wish from one election to the next. We do, of course, have a long tradition of scrutiny in this country. Yes, there are elections, but we also have a free press which scrutinizes all of us in public life. Parliament has its own checks and balances, some more effective than others. And there are rightly rules in place to regulate the conduct of the executive. Because faith in our politics depends on a belief that our system of checks and balances is fit for purpose. Many of these rules have evolved over time, and sadly, they can sometimes be confusing to the public. I think the ministerial code is a case in point. I offer no view of the rights and wrongs of individual ministers' conduct over recent months, but allow me instead to make some observations on the structures themselves. All ministers have a duty to abide by the ministerial code, but enforcement of the code is expressly a matter for the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister is supported in his or her role as arbiter of the code by the independent advisor on ministers' interests, and I hope someone will be appointed to that role soon. But the advisor has had no power to initiate investigations or publish the outcome of investigations except on the instruction of the Prime Minister. These and other issues were examined by the Committee on Standards in Public Life last year. In its report, the Committee identified lack of independence in the Ministerial Code as being an urgent need of reform. Sadly, a full response from the Government has not yet been forthcoming, but should be taken up as a priority. There have been some changes, such as the ability for the independent advisor to initiate investigations, albeit that should be discussed with the Prime Minister. I can understand why some may question if the independent advisor actually has the independence the title suggests. But we should think very carefully, however, about what reform of this system looks like. Certainly, I believe it would be a mistake to establish new regulatory bodies with greater powers, which could risk undermining democratic accountability. And nor do I believe the ministerial code should be placed on a statutory footing. The Prime Minister must be unconstrained in his or her ability to hire and fire ministers. <coughs> because as guardian of the ministerial code, he or she is uniquely and rightly accountable for the conduct of the government. It's the responsibility of being first among equals. A status sustained not by right or by law, but by convention, by confidence, by trust. And there comes a time as a leader when you have to recognize that trust no longer exists because faith in our politics goes to the very top. Nowhere is effective scrutiny more important than in Parliament, where our fusion of powers allows governments to dominate, particularly those with large majorities. Questions, debates, and the committee system all help to hold the executive to account, although they, they depend to an extent on government's willingness to engage. I can say as somebody who has spent literally hundreds of hours at the dispatch box, and at committee, the experience can be demanding, 
Nevertheless, I believe that over recent decades, the balance of power has shifted incrementally from the legislature to the executive. You might think it's uh, convenient I'm saying this now, but these have been long-standing views. I recall looking at this very matter as a member of the Select Committee on the Modernization of the House of Commons back in 2006 and working on the issue as shadow leader of the House. Of course, during the Brexit debates, we saw efforts by Parliament to wrest control of the agenda from the government. But we have over the years seen a more general change in the balance of powers between the executive and Parliament. I speak in particular of the shift in emphasis from primary to secondary legislation. Acts of Parliament are increasingly drafted in the broadest and vaguest of terms, with much of the detail left to statutory instruments created at the stroke of a minister's pen. But it's the detail that tells us how the law will actually affect the lives of the people we represent. Secondary legislation receives substantially less scrutiny, particularly under the negative procedure, in which an instrument is signed by a minister and becomes law before Parliament has had any say in the matter. 80% of all secondary legislation uses the negative procedure. The instruments cannot be amended, and in practice they are hardly ever rejected. The last time the House of Commons voted down a statutory instrument was in 1979. So if the detail is mainly left to secondary legislation, it will not get the level of scrutiny that it could get if on the face of the bill itself. The pandemic demonstrated just how much of the law is made by ministers rather than parliament. At a time when there was only minimal scrutiny, over 500 statutory instruments were laid in connection with COVID alone. In the last two calendar years, over 3,000 were laid. It is incumbent on the government to ensure appropriate use of secondary legislation. Secondary legislation is not a tool at the government's disposal for an easy ride. It should not be used to avoid the scrutiny of Parliament. But in an extraordinary move, the government has not only increasingly reduced the detail in primary legislation, but in the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill has gone even further. Of the 26 clauses in the bill, 15 over half confer powers on ministers to make regulations to change things, indeed to make, quote, any provision the minister considers appropriate, end quote, in relation to the protocol. One clause provides that any of these powers can be used to amend primary legislation, including the bill itself. Most concerning of all, Clause 18 provides that a minister may, quote, engage in conduct in relation to any matter dealt with, unquote, in the protocol, if the minister, quote, considers it appropriate to do so, end quote. In other words, as Sir Jonathan Jones said, a do-whatever-you-like power. There are other areas, too, where Parliament should have a stronger voice. The quality of legislation can be improved with more regular use of pre-legislative scrutiny, and I'm pleased to see the Draft Mental Health Bill undergoing this process currently. Similarly, Parliament lacks a systematic approach to undertaking post-legislative scrutiny to find out if our laws are actually working as intended. A dedicated joint committee of Parliament could undertake this task effectively, inviting input from the public. Because doesn't it make sense to spend more time asking whether the laws we passed have worked in the way they were intended? Admittedly, returning to the backbenches after 21 years has sharpened my awareness of these issues. As Prime Minister, you simply don't have the time to think deeply about such things when there are so many other issues in front of you. But I do believe the time has come for a rebalancing. Ultimately, the power of the House to scrutinise the government and its legislation 
depends on the effectiveness of the opposition and the strength of the backbenches. Because the humble backbencher is the fundamental unit of our parliamentary system. Those elected to Parliament are first and foremost a constituency MP. Ministerial office is a second job. Not everyone can be a minister, of course. There are only so many vacancies to fill. Most MPs think they are capable of being a minister, and many of them think they would do a better job than those currently serving. But it's less like being a backbench MP and more closely resembles that of a senior executive of a large organisation. And many of the skills are comparable, including being responsible for a large workforce, big budgets and complex projects. I'm not being unkind to my parliamentary colleagues to say that these are not everybody's strengths. I've always believed that regardless of the role you play in our public life, your ability is enhanced by outside experience. That might be professional, vocational or voluntary experience, but where you've held substantial responsibility. And we should do more to prioritise breadth of experience in the selection of parliamentary candidates. Because the quality of representation, the quality of decision making and quality of scrutiny in our system is strongest when those of us in public life better reflect the population we serve. James Brokenshaw had outside experience, serving as a partner at a law firm where he advised businesses on company law, corporate finance and mergers and acquisitions. His experience beyond Westminster made him a better minister. He was analytical, had an attention to detail and was commercially literate. He always knew his brief. He was able to truly understand the nuance of the subject matter and empathise with people's concerns. That grasp of often complex issued, issues engendered respect from the communities he served, not least in his constituency, in home office cases, in the particularly delicate case of Northern Ireland and as Communities Secretary. Because if politicians cannot demonstrate that unmistakable grip of their brief, it proves difficult to ever build genuine faith with the people we represent or inspire faith in politics as a whole. And the demands of office only grow throughout one's career. When reflecting on the front bench roles I've held, I remember the relative freedom of the shadow cabinet. Dreaming up creative new policy ideas, identifying flaws in the government's proposals, and popping up every now and then to make helpful suggestions. Indeed, at times it feels like my career has now gone full circle. But as Home Secretary, you are charged with some of the most important issues in our country, including policing, national security, and supporting victims of crime. You see some of the worst aspects of humanity and have to deal with harrowing issues. In my case, including serious violence and child sexual abuse. And the responsibilities of the highest office in the land can only really be appreciated by those who have ever sat in that chair, because the buck stops with you. Responsibility for international affairs and our relationships with the rest of the world. The health of the nation's economy, not just growth, but the public finances, people's jobs and livelihoods, schools and hospitals, the defense of the realm, the welfare of our forces, and much more besides. Of course, there are several briefs in government where many of the decisions you take will never become public knowledge. James Brokenshire held some of these ro roles. I won't elaborate but I, can elaborate, but I can confidently say that our country is now safer because of the work he did. Because being an effective minister is about more than having a technical skill set. It's about governing for the collective. Yes, a grip of one's brief is essential, but also genuinely immersing yourself in the issues making thoughtful, considered judgments, 
taking difficult decisions that aren't always popular, having a long-term view of the national interest. These values in office breed faith in politics. And governing as a minister of the crown is not the same as campaigning. Indeed, if you seek only to campaign, you risk neglecting the responsibilities of office. We only have to look to Scotland, where a single-issue party is fixated on campaigning for independence instead of addressing shocking rates of drug deaths or low attainment in maths and science. Of course, in a democracy, campaigning is an important element of winning power, and you might fairly accuse me of failing to win an outside, outright majority in 2017. Although, just an aside, I would point out more people voted Conservative than they had done for 25 years. But there must be a balance between election campaign mode and good government. Only seeking to campaign ultimately drives populism and polarisation, not finding compromise and consensus. We may have an adversarial parliamentary system, but when the future of our country is at stake, compromise isn't a dirty word. <coughs> I make no apology for seeking to find compromise on the greatest single issue of my political life, because to seek compromise is to bridge the differences between us, not exploit them. Strongly held issues can pit us against each other. Brexit did this, but we see it elsewhere too. In recent years, the trend in global politics has been away from the considered and towards the absolutist. In place of unity among countries defined by their shared values, we too often see polarization. A view of the world through a prism of winners and losers. Of course, compromise isn't easy, it's hard. It requires each of us to accept something we are uncomfortable with, but that's the task of governing. Bridging the differences between us, not driving entrenchment in our politics. Election campaigns are one particular theatre, but we should not be constantly searching for so-called wedge issues to divide us. Invariably, compromise means moderation. History has shown how moderation and electoral success don't need to be mutually exclusive. Will a refusal to compromise really drive up electoral participation or civil cohesion? Will our voters really feel their concerns can be accommodated if there is no centre ground? Will it really restore faith in politics? I fear not. As Democrats, we must recognise when our system of government comes under strain and seek to remedy the concerns of our electorate. I offer no single silver bullet, but I consider the themes I've addressed today to be fundamental if we are serious about this mission. Constituency first, play by the rules and the spirit of the rules, reject a culture of exceptionalism, strengthen our democratic processes, build faith through competence and empathy, govern, don't campaign, and seek consensus over division. At the heart of it all is trust. Trust of the elected by the electorate, the government by the governed, and it largely comes down to how we treat one another. Learning from James Brokenshaw's example, prioritizing decency, honesty, and integrity, we can all do more to live up to those values. Thank you. Theresa May, thank you very much for that um, terrific talk, which took us um, in a panorama of the kind of questions that we all want answers to, drawing on the, uh, really the past few years. Um, 
uh, even the past few days. But looking at all these questions from uh, being an MP to scrutiny, um, to use of legislation, um, to how a government goes about its business. And there's some fantastic questions come in, which have come in uh, very much as, as you were speaking. Um, very, very pertinent to what you're saying. I want to start really at the, at the beginning with the MP, being an MP. And um, I'm actually going to pick up at least one of the questions immediately, um, which echoes something I wanted to ask you. This one from Oliver Marsh. Is expecting an MP to be a local champion for, say, 100,000 people and to be a legislator and run departments, if that person becomes a minister, alongside time spent in party politics, is this just too much? And there are other questions also about the sheer burden of uh, social media and, uh, and, and anger directed at MPs. The sheer difficulty of um, being an MP these days, is it still a, a doable job? Well, yes. I mean, my first answer to Oliver's question would be, yes, I believe it is a doable job. But more than that, I believe the way that we have this system is absolutely um, important. I believe it does lead overall to better government, because as a minister, you have that connection with a constituency. I think if, if you are just brought in um, and appointed, and obviously there are countries where people are appointed, but you don't have that immediate connection with those that you're actually legislating for. So I, I actually believe that it's one of the jewels in the crown of our democracy, so I, I defend, would defend it. Of course, there's huge responsibilities putting all of those things together, particularly when you're um, you know, Secretary of State or Prime Minister. But the key there is actually, as it is at, at every stage, really, having good teams around you, having the, the, you know, good people around you to support you in what you're doing. Uh, and that actually eases the process of being able to, to be there in your um, constituency. When I was Prime Minister, I always spent at least part of the weekend in my constituency. Um, because I thought, still thought that was, that was important. I still went round knocking on doors, um, not as regularly as I had done previously, but uh, you know, somewhat to the surprise sometimes of, uh, of the, my constituents. Um, and I still do that today. Uh, so I think you, you can marry these things, you can uh, put them together. But the, the second issue that you raise there, the, the, how difficult it is to be an MP today in the world of social media and the bullying and the harassment Sadly, most of the victims, not all, but most of the victims are, are women mm. of that. And I fear that it will, and I think it has put some women off coming into mm. Parliament, standing for Parliament. I fear it, it may have you know, helped some women come to the decision not to stay on in Parliament. Mm. Um, it, it is something that is really problematic. And obviously the government's trying to do something in the online safety bill about which actually Jeremy Wright started the, the, the work on. Um, to, to deal with some of these issues, but there isn't a, there isn't a simple answer to it, um, but it does make life much more difficult for those in politics today. Mm. What would you um, say about the, the, the question, and we've got several questions put in the same way, of um, people saying, what one says very nicely, clearly untrue, uh, unfounded, that, uh, oh, politicians are all the same. Uh, it was in the context of the Prime Minister being um, likely to resign today. He hasn't yet, has he, Sam? Yes. He has, right. Uh, the Prime Minister has resigned. Uh, so what, you know, how would you dispatch this um, idea that they're all the same? Yeah. It's, this, is, uh, this is quite difficult. And, and actually, it's often combined with people saying, um, oh, our MP's OK, uh, but, you know, it's the rest of them. They're all the same. Um, 
How do you dispatch it? You can only dispatch it by your behaviour and the approach that you take, I think. Now, that's, that's not just a, a simple, right, if we do this, it'll, people will change their views. I think it's only by people seeing politicians genuinely working for them in their local communities and feeling, feeling crucially that government is um, responding to their interests and their concerns, uh, that, that we will actually get over that. Mm. Although I, I, think, I, mean, I think it's exacerbated, but I, I think over time, genuine, generally, people have held a collectively um, increasingly low view of, of politicians, I'm afraid. I always say when I moved from banking into uh, politics, I went down the trust uh, a list of hierarchy rather than up it. You can throw journalism into there. I always found it. It's always a contest between that and, and, and politics. Um, what do you think a, a new prime minister can, can do about this? We've got several questions, one from Simon Proud, but really people writing it rather movingly as he was talking, saying, okay, what, what, what one thing, given there has been this very turbulent period, what one thing could a new Prime Minister do? I think the key thing that a new Prime Minister needs to do is to seek to heal division. Mm. And that's to heal division in the country and, speaking as a Conservative, heal division in our party. Mm. Uh, and I fear that what has happened in recent years overall is that we have seen people becoming increasingly polarised. And I think we need to see uh, a Prime Minister who is going to actively work to unite the country and to heal that division. And I think that can help as part of the, the, the restoration of politics. You spent quite a bit of your speech, I was very interested in this, on, on, uh, on Parliament, on styles of legislation, use of secondary legislation, uh, some detail about the Northern Ireland Bill and the uh, extraordinary, to many of us, clauses within that. Is, is there, what do you think our unwritten, uh, uncodified constitution is up to um, indicating or putting constraints on governments about the style uh, with which they approach Parliament? Um, or do we really just have to trust to the good faith uh, of a government that it won't make too much use of secondary legislation, start writing powers into, into bills to give, uh, as, as you say, the do-what-you-want kind of powers to ministers? Yes, I think this is... Um a difficult one, because ultimately, um, as you're suggesting in your question, Ronwin, uh, the, the uncodified constitution, our conventions rely on the people in parliament, in government, and, uh, and indeed in opposition, a reference to the use of the humble address, um, in, in actually recognising a responsibility and uh, being willing to pull themselves back from sort of throwing away what are the, the, the normal rules. Um, because of in, in recognising that actually good government depends on us maintaining mm. those aspects of the uh, of the constitution and and maintaining some of those conventions. Um, obviously, there's been this over the last few years. We've seen this sort of tussle between Parliament and the mm. executive, and we saw it towards obviously the end of, of my time as PM with the various efforts to to um, from those who were against Brexit to take control of the order paper so mm. that no new deal could, uh, uh, you couldn't get a no deal uh, mm. through uh, Parliament. Um, and now, as we see, and particularly in the Northern Ireland Protocol mm. Bill, which I've spoken about previously, is, is I think, a, a mistake from the government, that attempt to sort of, well, if, if, 
you know, in order to do this, we, we have to take these more, more extreme powers. Mm. Um, there is, ultimately, it comes down to people in the House of Commons, actually, Parliament, making clear what its views on these, uh, on these issues are. I think it's difficult to think of a way of rewriting structures or legislation mm. that mm. actually has an, mm. an impact on, on this. And so what can discourage a government? And we're really talking, we're talking about um, discouragement, I guess, within Westminster, within, or, or pressure from Parliament, from the opposition, from a, a government's own party, because this is something of a specialist subject. Uh, we, we are in the land of a specialist subject here. Um, but it's not something that people march in the streets about saying don't have more secondary legislation, and yet they really care about the consequences. And it seems to me they care about the atmosphere of things being done without consent. But the people who can point a government in one direction and not another are largely going to be in Parliament, in the Lords as well, who are very exercised yes. about this particular yes. question. Do you think there is a, a kind of a, enough of a head of steam, if I can put it that way, to push in, um, future governments more back in the kind of line you're describing? Well, I, would, I, I think there is, um, there's certainly going to be a head of steam, as you say, in the Lords on the Protocol Bill, mm. which will, um, I think, be, show real efforts by the Lords mm. to, to, to change that But bill. it seems to me it also but, is on this question of the sheer volume of yes. secondary legislation. I think that's, I, I think one of the elements is actually um, probably an awful lot of people, even in Parliament itself, who don't quite recognise the change that has taken place over time, um, because each generation comes into the situation that is there at, at that time. So it's a very dry subject, and it's not the sort of thing that grabs the headlines. But actually just making more people aware of what has happened, I mm. think, is, is a part mm. of this. That this wasn't how it has always been. I mean, secondary legislation has always been a bit of an issue, mm. which is why I said I looked at it when I was shadow leader of the House and started coming up with all sorts of, um, I thought, good ideas about... How more scrutiny for secondary legislation. Mm. I also came up when I was shadow leader of the House with the idea that we should restrict the number of the bills that a government put through in any session. Um, and then some of my colleagues who'd previously been in government told me that wouldn't be a very good idea. And when I went to the Home Office, I realised why. Um, so, it's a, but, but just that, that sense of... If, when you come into Parliament as a Member of Parliament, mm. more is done these days. But there's not um, a sense of you having to understand much about the process of Parliament mm. when you come in. Um, and maybe there's more that actually we as political parties should be doing as well in terms of the candidates that... Um, and actually that to understand what Parliament is about and the principles on which it runs. And the principles it on which it, it, it runs, yes. Which, which actually, I'll use to jump to um, another point I was fascinated by in your, in your talk, and we were talking about, uh, obviously, the, the immense strength of James Brokenshire. Um, how long does it take to get good at being a minister? Get on top of the detail? Um, they don't always have that long. They don't always have that long, no. And it is um, initially daunting when you arrive at a department and you are provided with X numbers of piles of mm. briefing papers which the civil servants have assiduously put together for you in every possible detail. Um, it, um, so it does take time to get into it and to, to get to learn the, the issues. Um, but again, it, that's why having a good team, you know, the good civil servant will actively want the minister to get the understanding and get the knowledge 
as quickly as possible mm. in order to be effective as a, as a minister. Mm. Um, so it, it can take time, but it is, you know, it's hard work. Mm. I think that's the thing. Sometimes there's a sense that people will feel that maybe you're going to be a minister and, you know, it's wonderful and you, you get your red box, but, you know, so on and so forth. Um, you can go to all sorts of things and say you're the minister. But actually, mm. you've got to put the time in. You've got mm. to put the hard work in. Mm. And this has an impact. Um, you know, uh, Sophie and Gemma are here, but they will know full well the times when James was with his red box and having to do that rather than being able to spend time, give more attention to his family. It, it has, does have a cost to it, a price to it in, mm. in human terms. Um, but actually, that's what you have to do if you want really to be effective and really to be a good minister. Mm. Do you think the ministerial code should be strengthened? I've got several people here asking, you touched on the way the, the Prime Minister is the arbiter of that, that, that code. Yes, I mean, you see, here again, I, I guess I sort of, um, well, said this within what I was saying. I think this is very difficult. I think you have to have a proper process where somebody can independently look at the behaviour of a minister and whether they've broken the ministerial code. But I also think that it is up to a, should be up to a prime minister to determine who is in their government. Mm. Um, and, and it's the rub of, of that that is the difficulty of this. It's where you have a situation where it may be said that somebody has broken a ministerial code and a prime minister who, 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 who doesn't respond to that um, in the way of saying, right, then they shouldn't be in, in, the, uh, in the government. Mm. Um, so, it, it, again, it relies not just on the independence of the... Um, arbiter and new visor, but it depends on an understanding as to what the purpose of the code is mm. and how it should be how it should be treated. Mm. In all the terrific questions which are here, and there are many which have picked up on Mrs. May's speech in, in, in detail, I have to say there's an absolute flood asking one question: Would you be prepared to be a caretaker, prime <laughs> minister? And take that as a comment on your speech. <laughs> Look, I don't think, I don't, I, um, from everything I hear, and I haven't obviously heard recently, I don't think there's going to be a, 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 a caretaker prime minister in the sense of somebody else coming in mm. to, uh, to that, that role. We had, I mean, when I <laughs> stepped down, there was a process, the, the uh, new leader of the party was determined, and, um, uh, you know, I was, during that period of time, obviously, I was still there as prime minister, um, able to do, you know, do some things, but crucially, only really, I think, you, you have to restrict yourself in what you do during that period of time for several reasons. Um, uh, but the one thing I was able to do was the climate change net zero legislation mm. because it had consensus across the whole house. It wasn't a contentious mm. issue. So it was possible to put that legislation through. Mm. That narrows the field. <laughs> a bit of, of topics at the, uh, at the moment. But... Um, but it, that's, a, that's a really useful um, piece of advice. What, um, we're coming right to the end of this. What would you want to see from the next leader of the Conservative Party? I think, it, it, well, it goes back slightly to one of my earlier answers. I would want to see somebody who wants to concentrate on healing division, mm. who wants to unite the, unite the country and unite the party. I think this is so important going forward. I, um, I am concerned when I look at some other countries and um, you know, the polarisation of politics in the United States, for example. I think that we need to ensure that we avoid going down that very polarised route of, of politics and society. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that somebody who can heal division and, and 
encourage unity, I think, is important. And also somebody, you know, look, the, the key task of uh, somebody coming in as prime minister is going to be dealing with the economic situation and the cost mm. of living crisis. Mm. And there are some difficult messages for people there. Um, and I think the, it's important that somebody comes in who, who is willing to be honest with people about what the issues are and what the potential mm. solutions are, but what, what, how we might get to there and the difficulties that, that there will be on the way. Mm. Now I'm gonna ask you one, one final one. There's a lot of um, students and younger people have written in saying, would you encourage them to go into politics? Absolutely. Sometimes phrased in a way that they're worried about that, about the social media attacks in particular. Yes, yes. Look, I mean, I would encourage people who are interested in politics. We need people who are enthusiastic about their politics, who are committed, who have key values, which, as James did, but who really want to serve the public. And I always say, being a being, I think being a member of parliament is the best job in the world. Um, you can make a difference to people's lives at a whole range of different levels. You know, the individual in your constituency, surgery, issues for your constituency, and obviously contributing to legislation. Um, it, 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 I think it's an amazing job. And, uh, but when you're in that job, the one thing is, anybody who's interested in politics and coming into politics, please remember you are there to serve. You are a public servant. Okay, well, thank you. On that last note um, of public ser uh, service, I'm going to hand over to uh, Chloe Smith, who's just going to say a few words about James Brokenshire. Thank you for all the terrific questions, um, which draw directly on, on um, Theresa May's uh, speech um, and, um, the, and, and on the, the enormous amount of material in there. Uh, Bronwyn, uh, thank you very much. Teresa, thank you very much. It, it simply falls to me to uh, provide a few very short thank yous and to uh, provide a, a, a notice. So the thank yous very much go to Teresa for a, an illuminating and very, very uh, interesting lecture. So we thank you for having provided that in memory of James, our friend and colleague. And Bronwyn, thank you for having, uh, of course, chaired uh, and hosted uh, and sifted through those really important uh, questions uh, from the public and from the audience. Uh, thank you also to the team at the IFG who've been able to, today to happen uh, and to Jeremy and to our staff team who've also uh, worked to allow to take place, allow today to take place. Um, a very big thank you to Gemma and Sophie for joining us today. We're absolutely delighted to have had you with us and if I may say um, in you being here today uh, two young women at the cusp of the rest of your lives it gives us an opportunity to reflect on the memory of James which is what we had hoped to do today and um, we hope you've enjoyed it as part of that but also to look to the future and isn't that the theme of today's lecture what we might hope to be able to have in place in terms of public service and in terms of the important things in our shared country in the decades to come uh, Jeremy and I hope that there will be further ways to continue to honour James's memory and the important principles that have been touched on today. But it really, really does remain to do the important extra task of saying you'll have found envelopes on your seat if you're in the room uh, about the Roy <coughs> Castle Lung Cancer Foundation. We really hope you'll be able to give generously to that and to those online. Obviously, you'll be able to find that uh, online. Uh, if you haven't already had a chance to look at this campaign in which um, uh, the memory of James has, I know, caused 
record-breaking amounts of support for a very important cause, uh, one in which I, uh, I have a, a stake, and many, many others do who have been watching this. Please do look at it. Please do be able to give generously. Uh, and with thanks for the IFG for allowing us to also deliver that message uh, as part of today. Thank you. Well, thank you for that. And everyone involved in this restoring faith in politics, particularly Theresa May, thank you very much.